Well, what we did is we just started here in Northwest Arkansas, and we started traveling around the United States. What we went to 11 major cities we visited with the different homeless communities. We uh, volunteered, met up with other organizations, other shelters. Um, we simply just wanted to learn what other communities are doing to help their homeless population and what they're doing to help people get out of that rut. Um, and then we wanted to bring it back home. This trip was kind of to open my eyes to what really is out there and for me to kind of get a foot in the door and see what I can do to help all of them. We decided we weren't staying in hotels, we weren't going out to eat, we weren't stopping at gas stations for anything purely but gas. We ate at soup kitchens with them, we ate donated food um, that people donated to us. Coming back from our trip, it's like, okay, I automatically had to jump in, like, how am I getting school paid for? How am I going to pay for gas in my car? How am I, you know, going to pay for these extra things? And I do call them extra because compared to what we saw, they are. Jesus was worth it because I definitely got out of my comfort zone. I put myself in emotional situations and um, situations where I knew I wasn't safe. Where are we? Skid Row. All right, how do you feel? Nervous. All right, me too. Especially in Las Vegas, we were in a situation where it, was, it could have gotten out of hand extremely quickly, but at the same time, we had to approach these people um, and keep our cool because we knew that, you know, Jesus was there, you know, we had to keep faith, we had to um, kind of keep our act together. I actually got this, if I can pull it up, tattooed on my arm, it says Mark 10, 45, um, which is, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that kind of, I don't remember how I came across it, but as soon as I saw it, I was just like, that's one of the most true statements I've ever heard. Like, we are all called to serve. Um, and so that was kind of my motto for this trip. Forgetting what the world has told me Father of love, you can have me You can have me Well, a few weeks ago when I was here last before going to Southeast Asia, I felt like I, I stirred the pot a little bit. I think the whole entire series of messages is stirring all of our pots if we are taking the time and doing the due diligence to go through it with our hearts, our souls, our mind, and every part of our life, we're putting it out there. As I think about uh, a few weeks ago when I shared the message on the detours and the dead ends that, that we face in America, the dead ends and the detours of materialism, the dead ends and detours of, of, of just mediocrity in our, in our faith, I think that those those elements really describe who we are as a church, even as Grace Point Church. I'll be very specific about that. That, that materialism and mediocrity can so easily become the norm. And so when we talk about lifestyle changes and we talk about getting out of our comfort zone and moving into the unfamiliar, into the unknown, that it gets really uncomfortable. We say we just really quickly want to run back to the familiar and the comfort, which is really just a call back to mediocrity. And where do we run back? We typically run back to our nice homes and our, and our fancy cars and our, and our, and our plush lifestyles. And, and it's that materialism again that sucks us in. And I know for some it was a disturbing, disturbing talk and, 
It's been one of those that's riled around in some people's lives, and I've had emails and conversations beyond this, and it's it's all been it's all been a very healthy conversation because if, if nothing else, if if we get nothing out of this conversation on radical, then please let it stir us. Let it disturb us. Let it awaken a spirit inside of us that maybe has not been awakened for years. It was awesome on that day whenever just back in the corner, back where we have kind of a prayer corner for this series of messages, how a lady came back and she just realized in the second gathering, she just realized that, that her life has been living mediocrity and materialism and it hasn't been in a relationship with Christ. And she just right there nailed with me on the couch and we prayed and it was a beautiful opportunity. I talked with other families who've really gone and gone through the ABC budgeting methods and they think, I never really thought about my budget in the ABC kind of category and how I've, I've been able to reprioritize a little bit in my life. And we ate a lot of beans and rice that week. I don't know about you, but I did. And it was not a beautiful sight in our home, uh, always with me, a lot of beans and rice going around. But, you know, the, uh, one of the things that, that we walk away from a, a, a disturbing message and a challenging message series is, we can walk away very quickly with, a, with almost a, a feeling of guilt. And I'll promise you, that's not the goal. It's not the aim. It's not the direction of this series of messages. It's not for us to walk out of here and feel like a sack of wasted human flesh. That we're just worthless human beings and we're guilty and I can never live up to that and, and all that kind of stuff. It's not about guilt. But I will say this, that it will be about conviction. And there's a vast difference between guilt and conviction. And please, if you don't get anything, this is worth getting out of bed today. It's just understanding the difference between guilt and conviction. Because there will be times that you will be a part of a gathering like this, or you'll be a part of a series like this, or you'll read something in Scripture, or you'll read something, an outstanding, challenging book, or you'll have a conversation, a hard conversation with somebody, and you'll walk away, and you'll be battling this emotion. Am I guilty, or is it conviction? Is it conviction, or is it guilt? And you'll just kind of rattle back and forth between those two. But understand, there is a vast difference between them. And oh, how Satan wants you to feel guilty. That is one of his greatest tools in his arsenal because if he can get you to feel guilty, he'll make you feel worthless. He'll make you have this sense that you can never be anything for God and that you're not living up to and you just kind of just heap down and feel like some worm. Well, what, what really God is going at is conviction. See, what, what guilt is, is guilt is so much what Satan does when he tries to get us in the generalities. You are worthless. You're horrible. You'll never live up to that standard that they've been talking about in the radical. You're not faithful enough. And it's all in this generalities. That's what guilt is. But conviction is so much different. Conviction is from God. Guilt is from the devil. And what conviction does is it is like a laser into your life. It's like a laser that speaks into your life and comes into your life and it points out a specific area of your life that isn't on track. And he, it's like a laser coming in and just like a beam and it points out, this isn't right. Your words in this conversation weren't right. Your attitude over here isn't right. The way you're working on the job and not giving an honest day's work to an honest pay, that isn't right. 
When you're in a, in a culture such as Grace Point, whenever you read the scripture that talks about how we serve one and we worship one, and yet we can just walk out of here. And I've had people literally leave Grace Point because they felt guilty because they didn't serve. Listen, that's not guilt. That's a specific area. God is convicting. Guilt is whenever you feel like a, a sack of wasted human flesh. Like God can never use me. That's guilt. If God is pointing into your life and He is saying, this needs to change, your attitudes, your actions, your priorities, that is something you must bow your knee to. Please, don't walk away. Don't develop a dullness in your heart and in your life. There are so many other examples when it comes to the area of giving. When it comes to the area of financially actually contributing to something and we challenge you to start with a tithe and, and yet you feel guilty because you're not giving a tithe and so therefore you say, I'm guilty, I'm not worthless, I can't live up to that. And it's not about guilt, that's conviction. God is lasering in on your life and He's saying, this isn't right. I'm calling you to something better, a higher standard. I'm calling you to something bigger. Take your Bibles, we find the book of Matthew 26. We'll be there in a moment. But I want us to just remember, just to go back to, to something that I think is so much a part of our culture. We've, we've heard the American dream. We know about the American dream. But I, I think sometimes we've forgotten that inside the American dream is an American lie. And if we're not careful, we will believe the American dream and we'll pursue the American dream. At the same time, we are believing the American lie. The American lie says this, is that we believe that if we have more of what we already have, it's going to solve our ills. That if, if I have more of the stuff and if I had more time and if I had more relationships, if I have more of what I already have, if I, if I had more, 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 whatever more is for you, then all of my ills will be solved. And that's a very dangerous lie. And God, I think, would speak specifically into our lives. Say, listen, you need to get past this lie. You need to get past this lie. This is a big ask series. This is a big ask series of messages. And we're coming to the end of it in a couple of weeks. You're on chapter 8 this week in Radical if you're keeping up with everybody else. It's a big ask. There's been big conversations around the tables in the body life groups. It's big ask. It's, it's, it's calling for something, a lifestyle that most of us don't live. And one of those areas that we challenge or was challenged in is in the area of how we handle our monies. How we handle our, 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 our giving. How we handle what we have. And that's a big ask area because we're so much emotionally attached to that area of our life. And I think some of the things we got to do is we got to come back and we got to understand that we got to understand life and money and time and attitudes. And we've got to understand life through a, a God filter, through a God lens that this is, this is the kind of attitude I should have. And this is the way I should handle this. And we've got to start understanding that and when you come to the area of money, it's an emotional issue. We really get close to home when we start talking about money. Gets people uncomfortable. I've never enjoyed talking about money. Televangelists that put put it on such a bad radar on, in, in our lives that it's just like, oh gosh, you talk about money and giving, and it just it's very uncomfortable. It's extremely uncomfortable. 
I had a professor of mine early on in college. He said, Mike, don't be afraid to talk about money and giving. He says, the only people who get nervous when you talk about money are thieves. And that's what you just need to be aware of. If, they're, if they are financially good stewards of God's resources and they understand some key principles, they're not nervous. They're being affirmed. They're realizing they're on the right track. It's the thieves that, 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 that get nervous and get a little antsy when you start talking about money. So I began to think in preparation of this message, all the different times, and I, there's no way I could even begin today to list out all the different principles that Jesus talked when He talked about money. Because when you talk about Jesus and money, you're talking about, he's talking, he talks more about, about, about money than he talks about heaven or hell. Alright? We have no problem talking about heaven. We don't really like to talk about hell, but we, you know, it's out there and we, we know it's there. It's a biblical principle. But whenever you look at the amount of times that Jesus talks about possessions and money and, and stewardship and, and giving, and it's more than he talks about heaven or hell. So when we are talking about living a radical biblical life, we have to come to this very issue. It's a very important issue that we have to talk about. And so I want to give you three axioms real quick before we get into our text that we just need to kind of put our arms around because from the Genesis to Revelation, he's constantly giving us principles that we can build on. One axiom that you just need to kind of remember about life and about money and about possessions is that, number one, is that we own nothing. We are only managers of everything. We own nothing. We are only managers of everything. Everything that we claim is our own, everything we have a title deed, everything that the bank says that you owe us money on, we think is ours and we have this sense of entitlement. But if really you look at it from a global biblical perspective, it's not ours. We're managers of it, but it's not ours. God owns it all. Haggai chapter 2 verse 8 says, The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 18 says, Your God gave you the strength to produce all this wealth. The realization is that everything I have and everything I will make tomorrow and everything you will make tomorrow is only because my great God has given me the strength to do that. He's given me the networks, the relationship. He's given me the job. Everything that I have, all the money and all the silver and everything that is... No, it's not mine. It all belongs to Him and it's all, all because the, He allows me to be in the situation that I am. The best thing I could do today best thing you could do today is to take all of my life and just sign it over to God. All that I own and just sign it over to God and let it be His because it belongs to Him. See, wealth is not evil. Please don't ever hear me say that. Don't hear me say that three weeks ago. Don't hear me say that today. Wealth isn't evil, but what wealth can do to us can become evil. God owns all the wealth. It can't be evil. All right, the second axiom is the greater your gain, the greater your temptation to lose. The greater your gain, the greater your temptation to lose. And the reality is, is that God doesn't hate wealthy people. He loves, he, listen, he could, he could get along with John the Baptist who was a poverty stricken, ate bugs and wore camel hair clothing. All right. And that wasn't a fashion statement. He, he, he could hang out with the poor of the John the Baptists or he could hang out with an Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea. He, he, it didn't matter. He could, he could run with the poor or he could run with the wealthy. It wasn't that he was against the wealthy. But Jesus understood something. So in Matthew 20, 10, verse 25, which is the passage we looked at a few weeks ago, it says, it's harder for a rich man to enter heaven than a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Jesus realized something about wealth. 
it brings on unique challenges and unique temptations that most people don't deal with. And we talked about again a couple of weeks ago how everyone in this room, if you make $47,000 or more a year, you are in the top 1% of all global earners in the world. So I think we can clearly say, when you look at things from a global perspective, which is how God sees things, when you look at things from a global perspective, everyone in this room is quite wealthy. And if you don't make 37, you make 30, if you make, don't make 47, you make 37,000, guess what? You're in the top 2%. You can be impoverished in America and be one of the wealthiest people in the world. So what we have to do is begin to understand that we are wealthy people. And with the wealthy people, with wealth, with riches, we have unique challenges. And one of those unique challenges, Jesus is saying, is for us to be able to make it to heaven. Not because rich people don't go to heaven. We've even seen cartoons that all dogs go to heaven. Not true, but all right. But rich people can go to heaven. It's just going to be a challenge for us to get through that. Think about Jesus whenever he's talking with his disciples. He's training them up. He challenges them. And he says this to them. He says, you cannot serve God and what? Money. Now, he could have said anything. He could have said, you can't serve God and envy. You can't serve God and your enemies. You can't serve God and your pride. You can't serve God and the Republican Party. He could have said any number of things. But he said, you can't serve God and money. Why was he saying that? Why did he pick that out of all the plethora of different temptations that we face in life? Because Jesus realized something. We struggle when we gain. The more we gain, the greater your temptation to lose. Beware of it. Money is to the soul what salt water is to the taste buds. The more you drink, the more you want. Be careful. The third axiom before we move into the text of the message is the more you give away, the more you stand to gain. Sounds weird, I know. We had the Bush bell out and the Obama stimulus package and different kinds of uh, ideas of dealing with the economy. But Jesus has, I guess, an economic package all of his own. And it's not a bailout, it's a handout. And it's not us receiving the handout, but it's us learning to be the givers. It's developing a posture in our life where we become active, aggressive, intentional givers of our resources. Everyone in this room is wealthy. We've already can establish that. So it's learning to take our wealth that God has blessed us with, and it's learning to give that wealth. And as we learn to give away, we will also learn that we gain in our giving. God's economy doesn't fit into man's economy. And I can't give you all the who, what, when, where's, and how of how that works out, but here's just a verse for us. I want you to read it with me. Luke chapter 6, verse 38. Pop it up on the screen. There we go. Read it out loud with me. Give, and it will be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be put into your lap, for with the measure you use it, will be measured back to you. This is the words of Jesus. Jesus challenges us to be givers. He says, give and it will be given to you. The same measure you give, it will be given to you. Jesus has this economy of of finances here. When he's teaching us that generosity is a part of his economy. 
that if we will learn in, to live in the generosity economy of God's planned economy, that we will actually gain as we give. Now, I am not saying today, as again, the televangelist might tell you today, if you'll give a dollar, God will give you ten dollars. I am not advocating that at all. In fact, I don't know how God will bless you. But I believe with all my heart and from my own experiences that God will bless you in ways that maybe money cannot buy. So if you were to give a dollar and God give you ten dollars, you'd actually be cheaping the gift that God may want to give you because He may want to give you something that you can't buy with money. Think about it like that. God wants to open the windows of heaven. We give a ten. Uh, we give a ten percent challenge to everybody who joins our church. A, ten, a tithe challenge that if you'll tithe for three months and you'll be committed to tithing for three months. If after three months you look back at your life, you define the blessing. I won't define the blessing. You define the blessing. If you look back at your life after three months and don't see that God has blessed your life in some way substantial, we'll refund you your money. Now that's taking God's Word literally. That's taking Malachi 3.10 literally. You want to read about the challenge? Pick up the challenge there on the back radical table. But it's just an example of how God's got this economy that we don't live in. This economy turns everything on its heads that as you give away, you actually gain. That's one, Luke chapter 6, verse 38. Another one, Malachi uh, uh, 3, verse 10. You can read that on tithing. But how does all of this work? Look at 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 9, verse 6 to 8. It says it like this. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Notice that this, again, Jesus is use, or Paul is using the measuring tool. Just like Jesus said, in the measure you give, it will be given to you. Paul says, if you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Listen, I'm not going to tell you today what you ought to give. Nobody should tell you today what you ought to give. Your best friend shouldn't tell you what you should give. This is something that you decide in your heart between you and your, your relationship with God. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. Listen, there's no guilt in this message. There's no compulsion in this message. There's no have to in this message. It is part of living a radical biblical life that you just make the commitment and let God begin to work. But you sow sparingly, God will uh, give you sparingly. You sow bountifully, then God will give you bountifully. Notice what it goes on. It says, for God loves a cheerful giver. I have heard people say he'll take it from a grouch, but he loves the cheerful givers. God is able to make all grace. Now listen to this statement. This is how He begins to bless our life. God is able to make all grace abound to you. All grace. I love that phrase because as one person defined grace as God's riches at Christ's expense. Kind of puts it into an acrostic. God's riches at Christ's expense is what grace is. And is, is what happens is that God begins to bless our life in what way? By grace. Maybe you need grace in your relationship. Maybe you need grace in your marriage. Maybe you need grace in being able to, to help that, that whole economy thing of money ending up at the end of the month and not having enough pay or whatever it is. Maybe it's in, in a car. Maybe it's, maybe, it's, it, maybe it's material, but maybe it's a spiritual blessing. I don't, who knows what it is? What is your greatest need? Define your greatest need. And as you are giving, God will be giving to you. How does He give to you? He gives to us in grace. All grace abounding to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, 
you may abound in every good work. See, God begins to bless as we begin to give. If we begin to hoard, then God begins to hold back. And there's so many other axioms in there in the Scriptures, and I, I don't have time to go through them all, but what does a person really get through radical generosity? Well, again, Matthew chapter 26 is where we'll be today, but it's a story of Jesus in the last days, literally the last hours of, of His his life on uh, uh, before His crucifixion, before the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which would be just a week before His, his uh, trial and crucifixion and then ultimate resurrection. He's at a man's house named Simon. Simon identified in Scripture as a leper. That's really odd, and you've got to kind of hang on to that. Jesus is at a leper's house, because if you were a leper, you were not at your house. You were in a colony. You were cast out. You were not a part of the city. You were not a part of your family. But this man named Simon, the leper, is at his home. What is it? This man obviously had been healed. Was it one of the the ten that Jesus healed in Luke chapter 17? Was it the one leper that Jesus healed in Mark chapter 1? I don't know. I have to think, assume, maybe hopefully think, that Jesus is sitting at the table with Simon the leper, one of the lepers, lepers that Jesus himself healed. The Bible doesn't say that. That's my assumption. Also sitting at the table with Jesus is a man named Lazarus. Lazarus was dead for a number of days. Actually, his body was beginning to decompose in a grave. And Jesus goes to that grave and weeping, weeping before the grave, he calls for Lazarus to come back to life. And Lazarus comes back and lives again. So sitting at this table, can you imagine if you were a fly on the wall, if you were a Norman Rockwell painting, it couldn't have been any more beautiful. You have Jesus here. You have Simon the leper here. You have Lazarus who's been dead here. Oh, the conversations of that, of, that, of that table would be absolutely amazing. What was it like for you to be in the grave for four days? What was it like for you to be a leper? What's it like for you to be healed? What's it like for you to be alive again? What an amazing conversation. Also at the, at the table are his disciples. And sisters are there as well, Mary and Martha. And Mary walks up and does something that's totally out of the ordinary. It wasn't on the program. It wasn't in the plans. It wasn't in the script. But she breaks open an alabaster jar, as Jared spoke of a few moments ago, that was worth 300 denarii. You made just under a denarii a day. 300 denarii would be a year's salary is what it cost her. She breaks it open, spills it out from Jesus from head to toe. Now, John says it was from his head, uh, uh, from, from his, uh, on his feet, but, but Matthew and Mark say it was on his head. So who's right? Well, I just want to say it was a whole alabaster jar of milky white substance, a pure nard pulled from Jesus' head all the way to his feet. In fact, John goes on to say that she takes her hair and wipes it up. There's so much. Let's read the story. Matthew chapter 26. Begin reading with me in verse 6. It says, Now Jesus was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, and a woman came to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? Underscore the word waste. We're going to come back and talk about that. For this could have been sold for a large sum of money given to the poor. And Jesus answered, And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing. Underscore the word beautiful. Come back to there in a moment. Verse 11. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. 
in pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for the burial. Truly I say to you that whatever the gospel proclaimed in the whole world, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. I want to show you three benefits that come from being generous and intentional in our giving. Number one is that you give radical demonstration of your worship to Christ. Radical demonstration of your worship to Christ. As Mary gives this, 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 this beautiful gift, she gives this gift, and again, unscripted, unplanned, unapart a part of the program. She does two things with this gift. Now notice this. One is a sacrificial gift from God deserve a sacrificial gift from me. She does a beautiful thing here as Jesus, she's preparing, a light comes on in Mary's mind. She realizes that Jesus is about to die, about to give up his life. And a light comes on, the disciples still aren't getting it. But Mary's got it. And so she actually anoints him for burial. She knew something was about to happen in Jesus' life. And here she anoints him for burial. What she does is she realizes that Jesus was giving a sacrificial gift. So what should she do in response to that? See, our worship is always in response to who God is to us. If God is nothing, it makes giving really simple. Give nothing. If God is something beautiful and powerful and awesome, then by all means, our giving should be beautiful, powerful, and awesome. If God has done sacrificially blessed our lives, then we too should give sacrificially to Him. She gave a sacrificial gift. One pint of uh, of a years-long worth of salary is poured over Jesus. Think about what Francis Chan said in his book, Crazy Love. He said, lukewarm people give money to charity and to the church as long as it doesn't infringe on their standard of living. My friend, if any of us were to give one year's worth of salary, it would infringe on our standard of living. This woman was not suffering from lukewarm status. She was hot-hearted. She gave a sacrificial gift because she knew of a sacrificial God who was giving sacrificially to her. Another thing about radical worship and radical giving is it is a beautiful Savior deserves a beautiful gift. When you look at Jesus and His response, He said to His disciples, quit, quit nagging or quit giving her a hard time. He says, for she has done a beautiful thing. Again, all I can say about a radical element of our worship today is does it represent the God that you worship? Does it represent the God that you know? Because it is not about how little can I give and get by with it. How little can I give and it go on. You, go, you know, it's about how awesome of a God do I have and I serve. And how has He blessed my life? And how can I show my absolute praise and devotion to Him? She gave sacrificially because God was sacrificial in her life. She gave beautifully because God was beautiful in her life. Jesus looked at her gift, and I love the statement. It's a beautiful thing to me. To me. It's ugly to you. To me, it's beautiful. You see, the most important thing about any of our giving is that it's beautiful to our Lord. Is your gift beautiful to Him? We talk about 3G giving, generous, gregarious, 
glorifying. We talk about generous, obviously, that's pretty self-describing. You give freely. Gregarious means you give unhindered. It's not something you give grudgingly. Glorifying. Does your gift match who God is in your life? Number two, if you give, if you are a worshiper through giving, if you make God a priority in your giving, realize this, that you will also receive ridiculous resistance from those around you. There are people in your life right now, if you told them, some of you who give generously, those of you who look at you and maybe say, you, don't, you, you can't give that much, you shouldn't give that much, or, or whatever, there's this kind of this, that's a waste. The fact that some of your friends know you're here today and that you will take from, go from this gathering and to serve in another one, some would, would, of your friends would say that's a waste of your time. Think about the other things you could do with that money. Think about the other things you could do with your time. There's so many more things you could do. You're wasting it. It's exactly what the disciples said to Jesus. Why this waste? Why this waste? Again, if I can... Quote from Francis Chan, he says, Pride tells you that you've sacrificed more than others. Fear tells you that you, it's time to worry about your future, about the, about the future. Friends say you've given uh, enough. That is uh, someone else's turn now. But Jesus says, keep on, you will see more of God. See, what the disciples saw as waste, Jesus saw as worship. a big difference this world is going to look at generous gregarious glorifying giving and they're going to say that's crazy waste you're wasting your money and the reality what jesus says is you're worshiping me and it's beautiful it's awesome it's lovely don't get lost in the 300 denarii don't get lost in 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 the amount of money Don't get lost in how much you give compared to somebody else's gift, how big or little you give or how, how, whatever. Don't get lost in that. Notice that when, what, what really inspired Jesus was the extravagance, was the all in. You think, oh, okay, but I can't give all in. I can't do that. I don't make that much. All this kind of mental head talk starts happening. Think about the widow who gave just two mites. Two copper coins. And Jesus looked at her and said, she's given more than everybody else in here today. See, it's, it's not equal gifts. It's equal sacrifices. It's equal sacrifices. What's it costing you? The disciples tried to turn it to say, hey, you know, what about the poor over there? We're going to help the poor. Hey, listen, Jesus is not anti-helping the poor. He's all about that. God says even in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11, you shall open wide your hand to, to your brother and the needy and the poor in your land. That's what we ought to do. We ought to, we ought to be generous. But when it comes down, there are times in our life when who gets the priority? Jesus is the focus. Jesus said, the poor you'll always have with you, but I won't always be here. See, we can never give enough money to solve all the world's ills, but we can give to a God who can through us use us and our giving to solve many of the world's ills and bring glory to Him. Folks, if you give today, generously, gregariously, glorifying, if that becomes your lifestyle, you will turn 
that giving into radical demonstration of your worship to God. All right? Let's worship God today. Radically. Also, if you give, I'll just warn you now, you'll have some friends that will look at that as a ridiculous effort that you are doing. It's, you shouldn't be. It's ridiculous. It, it, it's a waste. What we call waste, God calls worship. But I want to leave you with number three. The third benefit at least that will be to your cause and to your name in giving is that the remembrance for future generations. Let me say to you moms and dads in this room today, you grandmothers and grandfathers in this room today, you to-be moms and dads in this room today, what you do right now with what you've got is teaching your children more than you could teach for years in lecture classrooms, in degrees, What you do with what you've got will teach your children for generations. They will live in lifestyle the way you live in lifestyle. Create for yourself a new legacy. Create in yourself a legacy that would be noted in Scripture. Verse 13 says, Truly I say to you, whoever the Gospels proclaim to in the whole world... What she has done will also be told in memory of her. She is creating a legacy that's going to go on for years and years and years and years. When you look at this passage, though, you can't miss the the dichotomy of legacy. There's two legacies being shaped here. Because the person that is actually generating the the stir among the disciples, the the disciple that's really causing the the, the stir, calling, calling her gift a waste. Listen to this, listen to this. It's Judas. Have you ever heard of him? Judas stirs it up in John in John's account. John gives the account, uh, and uh, and then Mark gives an account, and Matthew gives an account. But in John's account, it's 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 Judas who stirs it up, and the other disciples join in. That's waste, that's waste, that's waste. It started with Judas. I want to give you two legacies when you walk out of here today. I hope you'll choose one. I hope you'll choose the higher one. One's the self-seeking hoarder legacy. Because if you were to take your Bibles, and I don't know how your Bible's outlined, but if you, we just read through verse 13, and I don't know what your verse 14 says, but I have a little heading above mine. It says, Judas betrays Jesus. Literally coming out of this very scene, you find where Judas goes and sells the information of where Jesus is. Later on, he delivers Jesus over. Later on, you find the very last accounts and the episodes and the frames of his story, of his life. You find the story of a person who's self-seeking hoarder. What you don't find in the account of Matthew is what, Jesus, what, what John calls in, in John chapter 12, verse 6. And you can read that story. Again, it's the same account, just a little different details. Read it later on. But listen to what it says. As a keeper of the money bag, speaking of Judas, he used to help himself. There it is. He used to help himself. See, Judas lived a life. Listen. Oh, my gosh. Don't miss this. As a follower of Jesus. Serving as the treasurer. He was at an official capacity. 
He was the the money bag carrier. He was a respected person among the disciples. But yet he used to help himself from the bag. I, I, I just say this, guys and gals, you can be a follower of Jesus, you can be a card-carrying Grace Point member and be living a self-seeking, hoarding kind of lifestyle. Is that the legacy we're going to live behind? Number two is the legacy that Christ-seeking worshiper. See, his legacy was about his standard of living. Her legacy was about her standard of giving. She had a different legacy. Jesus taught his disciples early on, Matthew 6, 33, to seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. The interesting thing, the context of that verse is in the context of Jesus talking about money. Don't get caught up in the money. Don't get caught up in the stuff. He says, you seek me first. You seek my righteousness first. Everything else is going to take care of itself. Everything else is going to wash out. You seek me first. She was a Christ-seeking follower. I thank God because you're sitting in the place today that we gather as Grace Point Church today. You're sitting in the place today that we had some amazing families in the very beginning of our church that gave so sacrificially. When we were building this facility, there was 200 people, and we challenged, we're 200 building for 500. You can see we're well over 500 today. What is that about? Because there were 200 people who said, listen, and that's kids included, so we were robbing from piggy banks and everything. I mean, it was one of those things that we said, okay, we're serious about Grace Point Church. And there were 200 people who said, I want to give generously, graciously, gregariously, glorifyingly to this work. And you are now setting and your children are being taught in and you are growing in the very context and you're living in the... You're a a beneficiary of people who gave generously. I wonder for the next generation who will be the givers that will make the next and the future become reality. I want to give you a personal question and I'm going to close. Whose legacy will you live? Will your life be known more by your standard of living or by your standard of giving. Judas' legacy ended with him going out into a field and hanging himself and falling to the ground and the birds coming and eating his insides. The legacy of Judas started so good but ended so poorly. He lived for personal standard of living. This lady who we know very little about, she did something so radical. It changed the atmosphere of the room. The odor of the room changed because of her giving. If I can quote one more time from Francis Chan's book, Crazy Love. He said this, he said, lukewarm people are moved by stories about people who do radical things for Christ. Yet they do not act. Will you be lukewarm? Will you be radical? See, I believe today that everybody in this room has come today. And we've come as alabaster jars. And we're beautiful alabaster jars. We've done a lot to clean up the outside of our alabaster case. We come in here and we do alabaster talk face to face or jar to jar. We come in here whole and complete and contained. We come in here managed and manicured. Really what God wants from us is to be broken. 
and poured out. Emptied out. Changing the very environment of the room. And see, the question today is whether I will live extravagantly or I will give extravagantly. And again, don't get caught in the dollar signs. It's giving all in. She gave all. The widow's mic. The widow gave all. I want us to bow our heads. The challenge will be whether or not we will be different today. We will live differently. Or will we just hear another story of a radical thing that really won't stir us to change? You know, and it's not one of those things that will be easily done. We're nearing the end of this series of messages. And my horrible nightmare is this. Is that we will hear and see radical examples of radical people but it won't change us. It won't change our living. It won't change our giving. It won't change how we go and where we go. We've talked about being willing to be persecuted and to suffer for Christ if God calls us. And He's called us all to the ends of the earth. We've talked about reprioritizing our life. Will we? Father God, Father God, please don't let us miss the opportunity to be broken and poured out. to give ourselves wholly and completely to you.